back. Talking Slayer. Guess what I did this week? It doesn't matter. We're talking Slayer. That's what we do. It's all we do, mostly. Quick note, despite promising progress last week, the Apple podcast feed and the Patreon page are still all funked up. More about that at the end of the show. For now, this is another long episode. I am your pal Ferris, a.k.a. DX Ferris. D like devil, X like X-ray tech, Ferris like Bueller. I wrote two books about Slayer. Here is two chapters from one of them. Chapter 6 starts off a little bit dry. There is not too much Slayer in the chapter. And after that, there is a lot of color and a lot of Slayer in Chapter 7. So I'm reading that too. Here it comes. Chapter 6 Thrash Incubator Some cities, some states, some fields of business invest in an area to create, hopefully, an environment that will generate more activity in an industry. They call these projects something like a tech incubator, a this incubator, a that incubator. California was a thrash incubator. The state of California didn't just host the thrash metal revolution. It sponsored it to the tune of $2.3 billion. It spent that much money on a project whose inadvertent results included a stronger, newer version of heavy metal. Southern California is a place of contrasts. It's a sun-baked melting pot of religious Republicans, conservative businessmen, generations of their rebellious kids, chill surfers, stoned hippies, belligerent rednecks, more than a handful of Latino cultures, and an equally unhomogeneous black population, other nationalities, and a cornucopia of good-looking type A personalities drawn there from all over the world looking for fame and fortune. Given the weather and the culture, the area is a fertile ground for gritty alternatives. Over the course of the 20th century, musical culture had drifted away from its roots in myth and magic and mysticism in the martial battlefield tradition. Heavy metal brought it back. Thrash was faster than everything that came before. It was heavier, it was louder, it was darker. Compared to party-hardy bands like Motley Crue and Quiet Riot, which, make no mistake, I like them, I love them a lot, nothing wrong with them, but compared to bands like Crue and Riot, Intricate thrash compositions felt closer to classical music, and they were also bigger, harsher, gnarlier. In the mid-1980s, Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth and Anthrax established the broad parameters of thrash metal. These groups were collectively known as the Big Four thrash bands. They were not always the genre's most extreme acts, 
again, when I say big four, in no way am I trying to minimalize or marginalize morbid angel testament. But the big four bands in that golden age, they emerged as Thrash's most successful groups. Eventually, they headlined arena tours and they put up platinum numbers. Three of the big four bands hailed from California. Over six decades, the state had invested in a thrash incubator. In the early 1980s, Southern California's emerging metal scene was built by suburban teens from outlying Los Angeles and Orange Counties. Its stars were not old enough to legally drink, and they were not polished enough to play clubs. So Slayer, Metallica, and their pals worked at home, where they smelted iron into a new form, in Downey houses, Downey's a town, houses that were soon to be demolished. The blue-collar community had resisted the long-gestating Interstate 105 project tooth and nail. The 105, world-famous California highway, uh, had been on the drawing board since 1947. The interstate was intended to link the L.A. County suburb Norwalk and the Los Angeles International Airport. Plans finally came together in the late 1960s. The controversial first drafts were to cut a swath through numerous low-income neighborhoods, targeting thousands of homes, apartments, and businesses for destruction. This is some classic governmental fuckery involving classism, economic warfare, racism. I think so. Happens a lot. A class action lawsuit stopped progress on this project in 1972. The lawsuit settled in 1979. Construction on the 105 began in 1982, and the 105 opened to traffic in 1993. Ultimately, the $2.3 billion project, which was financed by the state and its partners, displaced around 8,000 structures across nearly 6,400 parcels of land. Between groundbreaking and completion, this multi-generational endeavor yielded some unexpected dividends and left deep marks in metal and punk. If you have the book, you can see uh, what my sources are. I cite them all. It's not the most exciting stuff, talking about state records and L.A. Times articles. It's there if you want to read more, though. Check out the book. This is page 21. Preparing for the freeway, the California Department of Transportation, also known as Caltrans, one word, bought property after property. Between the time that Caltrans cut the first check for a house and the start of demolition, the 17-mile stretch of eminent domain would become a playground of abandoned, condemned, and doomed houses where metalheads could party and punks could squat. That punk scene, the kids in the Mohawks living in vacant homes, that was dramatized in the movie Suburbia, which was a low-budget flick by Penelope Spheris, the 
great director whose work includes the L.A. punk documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization. Spheris later chronicled hair metal in The Decline of Western Civilization Part Two: The Metal Years. And then she spellbound America with long hair hijinks in the Wayne's World movie. The Suburbia soundtrack featured the D.I. song, Richard Hung Himself, which Slayer would much later record on the covers album, Undisputed Attitude, which, have I mentioned, fucking rules. These neighborhoods, these doomed neighborhoods, these empty houses, these sites, they were also a nexus of bands who were locked in a friendly competition for the metal crown. One of the people I talked to about this scene in this time was Caton W. DePina. He is frontman of the underrated, very underrated, Thrash Also Rans Hyrax, who were one of the marquee acts of the label Metal Blade in the early days. Metal Blade, spoilers folks, is the record label that will sign our heroes Slayer. This is what Caton said to me about that time and that scene in these neighborhoods. He said, It was great. It was a great time to be young and crazy. There was nobody to really police us, so we could just do whatever, because the houses were going to be torn down anyway. But some people held out in those areas as long as they could before they had to leave, like Metallica. We used to hang out at their house all the time. You heard metal 24-7. Unquote. Before Cliff Burton... Famous Metallica bassist, may he rest in peace, for my money, the all-time great metal bassist. Before Cliff Burton joined Metallica, the original bassist was Ron McGovney. McGovney's parents owned four properties in Downey, and they held on to them. The family rented a row of three homes, and once the writing was on the wall, they let young Ron and his friend James Hetfield, singer from Metallica, live in the middle house for free. McGovney and Hetfield turned the garage into a red and white practice space, and the house became the Metallica clubhouse. The 105 scene was an all-star metal rager. Before Slayer were musical stars, half of the members were MVPs on the party circuit. In these houses, long-haired Heshers would blast vinyl, pound beers, and swill vodka into the small hours until everything faded to black. It was a diverse scene. Araya, Tom Araya, Slayer singer, was a regular, if not a pillar. Araya told me that even though Slayer would spend time hanging out with other bands, they were not tight with them. Jeff Hanneman, founding co-guitarist, songwriter, He was more likely to bring over friends from his former high school football team, the Jordan High Panthers. Hanneman, in 2009, told the great heavy metal reporter uh, Jay Bennett, who was working for Decibel Magazine, a really good article, Hanneman told him, I played defensive end, I would be the guy who went after the quarterback. I think that's a good note about Jeff Hanneman. In this life, there are quarterbacks, and then there are the guys that go to take them down. The singer told me, You gotta get drunk, be young and stupid. Kind of laughing at it, looking back. 
He said, we would just do what everyone else did, stand around and try to look cool, unquote. That was a heavy metal party. For the most part, Araya did not find it weird hanging out with kids who were four years younger. But occasionally, a potential downside would occur to him. He told me, you never think about that until you're in a situation like, fuck, I'm the oldest one here. I could get in trouble, unquote. Hanneman was around so much that he threatened to become a fixture. When you were walking upstairs at the McGovney's, you would not be surprised if you had to actually physically step over Hanneman, who would be passed out on the staircase. Hanneman was the band's party king, but Slayer's actual, literal king was absent. Caton said, I've never known Kerry to be a party guy. He is driven as hell. He bleeds Slayer blood, and I'm sure he goes to bed thinking about Slayer. The ones that I remember partying most were Hanneman and Araya. The stories about Jeff Hanneman are legendary. Kerry King would not take his first drink until he was 21, and he never used drugs. Since he skipped the parties, even scene regulars only knew Kerry King as a swaggering, cocksure figure from shows. But when you did pin him down, he was shy. One-on-one, he would hesitate to make eye contact with you. In either mode, he was not as well-liked as Hanneman and Uriah. Caton from Hyrax recalls, I thought he was a pompous jerk, but now I totally get him, and I understand what he's about. He's one of the guys that I respect most in the music scene. Also absent from the parties was drummer Dave Lombardo. He was already sidelined with his future wife, Teresa. Teresa, she was two years older than Lombardo. Her brother, younger brother, had been in the drummer's class in elementary school. She caught Lombardo's eye when shopping at Kmart in Cudahy, California. At the time, that community was a seedy city in Los Angeles County that was small and dense with trailer parks. Lombardo worked at Kmart, the department store, where he would often serve as a greeter at the courtesy desk. Imagine going into Kmart or Target, and there's Dave Lombardo. As a greeter, he did not always make a great impression. For some shifts, he would show up, dead tired, with raccoon eyes, black circles literally in his eyes, from the makeup that he had worn at the previous night's show. One day... Teresa walked in, and he locked onto her. And once they connected, their paths would not diverge for nearly 30 years. Teresa's ongoing presence eventually became the greatest source of friction in Slayer's history, which spanned almost 40 years. The future Mrs. Lombardo saw Slayer play at a party early in its career. She was on hand for the band's first club show, but she was no groupie or club rat. As Slayer's renown for thrashing it up on and off stage grew, the Lombardo clique completely skipped the party. The drummer remained loyal to his number one fan. Recalled Lombardo when we were talking about this scene, he said, we had our own party going on. 
Okay, not a whole lot of Slayer in that one, but here it comes. Chapter 7, Slayer Takes the Scene. From the start, Lombardo and Slayer were often on different pages and in different places. Araya, Hanneman, and King were the product of local public schools. Lombardo had attended Catholic school until high school. Slayer had played their first show, Halloween 1981. It was an afternoon show at Southgate Park Auditorium, a battle of the bands. Hanneman did not get much attention at home, but on stage he sure did. He told Guitar World reporter Randy Howard once, he said, I was nervous as fuck before we went on, but as soon as we started playing, I loved it because I loved showing off. Once I got up there, I was like, yeah, this is great. At that first show, it was an all-cover set, all-cover songs. The set included Rock the Nation by Montrose, Deep Purple's Highway Star, and, if Hanneman recalled correctly, UFO's Lights Out. When the aspiring musicians were not partying like rock stars, Slayer would play shows wherever they could, at high schools, house parties, and back alleys behind industrial units where they could unload their gear and plug into an unprotected power outlet. Slayer hit the big time in June 1982. That was when they scored their first cover photo. The student paper gave the band a vague review and a feature about a new program that lets bands play lunchtime gigs on Fridays if no conflicting events were scheduled, that is. Maybe a pep rally, maybe Slayer. King, looking back at it, said, When we started, nobody liked us. We just kept going, and people stuck around. After a year, the band graduated to club gigs at Costa Mesa's Concert Factory and Anaheim's Woodstock Concert Theater which was a middle ground for Heshers from Los Angeles and Orange Counties. That was a graffiti-filled square room with overflowing toilets and a rundown ambience comparable to the famous CBGBs in New York City. In 1982, Slayer played about a half dozen or so club shows, all of them in California. The members of Slayer worked and they scrimped and they stole to provide for their band. A miniature golf course was King's last non-Slayer job. The boss there told him to quit his hair. King told the boss he quit, and he did. At King's few retail jobs, he had demonstrated a knack for sticky fingers, not only fast fingers. He would take home a couple fringe benefits when nobody was looking. When he was strapped for cash, King would keep himself in the reptile game by shoplifting snakes. He shoplifted snakes. As the band grew, the guitarists would use their kleptomaniac skills to assemble an impressive stage show. The group would raid local apartment complexes where they would steal big light bulbs for their lighting rigs. They would climb around with screwdrivers in their pockets in case the lights had protective mesh over them. The band eventually assembled an eight-foot inverted pentagram of white lights that straddled Lombardo, and they would flash behind him when he played. As the band started gigging regularly, 
Lombardo was the first member of the band to buckle. He didn't just skip parties. About a year into the group, Lombardo forced the band to cancel a show at the URWA Hall, the United Rubber Workers of America, which was a union headquarters that the band regularly rented. The young, hungry group was forced to drop off the bill. Pissed off that they could not play, the rest of Slayer made a show of posting signs around the scene announcing that the band would be auditioning drummers. The scuttled URWA gig was an isolated incident, but Kerry King never forgot or forgave it. To King, Slayer's incredibly consistent history is a matter of personal and professional pride. And the very few times that other members dropped the ball, those are permanently stuck in Kerry King's craw. Between shows, the band's headquarters was the garage at Tom Araya's house, which was the Huntington Park midpoint between Lombardo and King's parents' houses. It was nicknamed the Club Horizon. It was a gutted two-car structure that was soundproofed with fiberglass insulation, stuffed with amp stacks, plastered with rock posters, and lined with a wall-long mirror so the band could watch themselves headbang as they practiced. Once again, we turn to the words of the late, great Albert Cuellar, the Slayer cover artist who was friends with the Araya family. He told me, It was a really good family. Very close. The fact that the kids had the garage to play their metal music, I thought that was very big of the parents. End quote. The bigger the band got, the more time they spent in the garage. Eventually, Hanneman even moved in for a spell. King, looking back, told me, We were there every fucking day, and we'd rehearse Jeff would play drums, and I'd play a riff, or vice versa. That's how we came up with a lot of drum parts, believe it or not. Not to take anything away from Dave. Unquote. In a corner hung a homemade giant banner that said Slayer in giant red letters on a white bed sheet. When the group bought more gear, they would also set off flash pots inside the garage. And after that canceled URWA hall show, there were also fireworks in the driveway. After that show, the next time the band met, they had a huge argument outside the garage, and it would not be the last one. Lombardo laid it all out. He said he was well within his rights to cancel. He was sick. He couldn't play. If he played, he would be sick longer. He needed the rest, and he needed to get better. King, however, did not think that Lombardo understood his point of view. He said, Like, dude, you don't get it. We need a drummer that plays when he's sick. In a different sense of the term, Lombardo had always been a sick drummer, and Slayer, always a sick band. Slayer did not arrive fully formed, but they always had it. On the club circuit, Slayer smoked competitors like Vermin, Tormentor, and Abattoir. All respect to those bands, good bands, but they were not Slayer. 
Early on, like Metallica, Slayer would wow crowds with spot-on cover songs. The band fleshed out set lists with tunes by Judas Priest, Deep Purple, and UFO. Brian Slagle, the Metal Blade founder, CEO, Hall of Fame metal guy, Slagle has repeatedly said that a highlight from Slayer's opening sets was a jaw-dropping rendition of Iron Maiden's Phantom of the Opera. In fact, a good 40% of Show No Mercy's prog-influenced DNA is present in Iron Maiden's self-titled 1979 debut. Take a list and see if it sounds familiar. But King said they never played that particular song. All the covers were out of the set by early 1983, however. Carrie King is the band's archivist. He has a vast archive of Slayer material that reportedly contains cassettes of those early shows. But the Slayer cover sets have never surfaced on widespread bootlegs. Believe me, I've looked. They are the Slayer collector's holy grail. Curious fans, however, can get a taste of what the Slayer covers sounded like. In 2009, footage surfaced of Araya jamming with his brother John's band, Bloodcum. That's spelled B-L-O-O-D-C-U-M, one word, spelled like it sounds. Wearing tight jeans and a leather jacket, Tom sings Motley Crue's Looks That Kill, ACDC's Highway to Hell, Quiet Riot's Bang Your Head, Metal Health, Judas Priest's Breaking the Law, Dio's Rainbow in the Dark, and The Scorpion's Blackout. Look for that on YouTube. It's good stuff. I'll take a moment here and plug the fact that if you're reading the ebook, which is ridiculously cheap, of my Slayer band biography, most references like this have links to video like that. Check it out. Blood Come, Slayer, Covers, YouTube. It's good stuff. When Slayer was a young band, their original catalog quickly took form. Some songs crawled out of the primordial sludge and changed names as they evolved. An early version of the slamming new wave of British heavy metal spawned The Final Command was called Blitzkrieg. Early on, the proggy song Kill Again was called Warlock. In its original form, Cryonics had a slow, clean intro that would not have sounded out of place on a Leonard Skinner album. These you can also find on YouTube pretty easily. When I wrote the book, much harder to check out. All these years later, pretty easy to check out, and they are worth taking a look at, or a listen to. Muddy Bootlegs preserves some of the unreleased nuggets. The song Night Rider plays like an accelerated cover of a classic rock tune with a 60-second drum solo in the middle of that four-minute rocker. The centerpiece of the song's simple aggression is hot-lick fretwork that demonstrates Carrie King's love of Van Halen. The song Assassin, at its heart, is a repetitive, rockin' riff that accelerates until the song sounds more like the Antichrist. With a razor-tipped riff that recalls Judas Priest, the High Priestess, early Slayer song, splits the difference between Aggressive Perfector and The Final Command. Elements of the song Ice Titan survived in the song Cryonics and Altar of Sacrifice later. That cut 
Ice Titan, is the only unreleased pre-Show No Mercy song that would later see the light of day on the 2004 box set soundtrack to the Apocalypse. That career retrospective, called the best Def Jam in American material, plus rare video, alternate versions, bonus cuts, and live material. The band re-recorded the song Aggressive Perfector during the Rain and Blood sessions. In the band's recording days, as ever, Slayer were not prolific songwriters. The band's unreleased songs amount to about an EP worth of material. While Slayer were hashing out original material like Aggressive Perfector, they were getting their look down, too. They played early shows in flashy shirts, big hair, and tight pants. In photos from the earliest gigs, Hanneman poses in tight red leather pants and a purple and black zebra-striped shirt. Carrie King wore a tight red and black shirt with a functionless chest flap. Can you picture Slayer dressed up like that? Hey, it was a very different time, folks. During shows, Hanneman and Araya and King would form a straight row across the stage and, emulating Judas Priest, they would headbang in vicious synchronicity. Eyes circled in black makeup, a Hesher frontline for the ages. The choreography, the black and raccoon eyes, and the spandex did not last long. Kerry King would later look back at those days and refer to them as their Scorpions phase, when they look like rock band the Scorpions. A December 1982 ad depicted the band in their spandex glory with the caption, The Heavy Metal Nightmare Begins. In that ad, which Catherine Hanneman recently posted on her Instagram, if you're paying attention to this kind of thing, if you're following the book's Instagram feed, Instagram slash Slayer Books with an S, you can see me repost, restoryfy some of this material, some of these pictures. Hanneman in that ad looks more like Billy Idol than Matthias Jabs. Inspired by his favorite punk musicians, Hanneman had shaved his head and it was still growing in. Slayer's flashy show and furious music caught the eye and ear of that Brian Slagle. As I said, he is a heavy metal Hall of Famer, first ballot. At the time, he was another record store clerk. He had turned into a columnist for the UK great rock magazine Kerrang! And in America, he was publisher of the new heavy metal review fanzine. Slagle launched Metal Blade Records, which is still, if you're not paying attention, a leading metal label all these decades later. He launched it in 1980. The first Metal Blade release was the Metal Massacre compilation, which featured crunchy, speedy bands like Avatar, Bitch, Sirith Ungle, Malice, Steeler, and it was all topped with Hit the Lights, the first recorded song by Metallica. In fall 1982, Slagle attended a club show by the Metal Blade band Bitch. He had never seen the opening act, before. That opening act? Slayer. His discriminating senses were overloaded. He told me they were unbelievable live. They just had a certain intensity and magic on stage. They were heads and shoulders above the other bands. 
Then once they started to write songs, they started to write great metal songs as well. Reeling from that experience, Slagle went backstage and he talked to the band's then manager, Stephen Craig. Slagle told Craig about the upcoming edition of his compilation, which would be called Metal Massacre 3. Slagle got Steve Craig some copies of his Metal Massacre comps. Kerry King listened to the B-Squad bands. That's how he looked at them anyway. He thought, quote, Oh, I can do that. Unquote. Slayer's burgeoning reputation did attract other key allies, too. On April 23, 1983, Slayer met one of their biggest fans. At the heart of the story of Slayer, heavy metal heroes, uncompromising speed metal band, at the heart of their story is a hidden love story for the ages. As it turns out, the guy who would write Necrophiliac had a romantic streak. Catherine Hanneman, Jeff's longtime wife, recalled the story for Guitar World reporter Jeff Kitts in a surprisingly tender account of Hanneman's life and death. Jeff Kitts wrote an excellent, amazing postmortem for Jeff called Rainmaker, R-E-I-G-N. In that story, Catherine recalled the date as a weekend night in March 1983, but the band's only Woodstock show in March 1983 was on a Monday night. So I reached out and I asked Kitts, who is a good dude and who is generous with his time and his work. He's a gentleman. He's a scholar. I asked him if maybe Catherine might have misspoken and maybe she meant May 1983. He graciously, he reached out to her. And after we reviewed some possible dates and some videos, she consulted her files and she said that she is sure that the first time that she saw Slayer was April 23rd, 1983 at the Woodstock. Catherine, then 15, was growing tired of going to the movies. She wanted a new kind of fun. She was about to find it. She talked her father into letting her stay out late so she could attend a metal show at the Woodstock. With fewer than two dozen people in the audience, she was able to get a prime spot in front of the stage, right in front of Jeff Hanneman. Hanneman had a girlfriend at the time, but when the guitarist caught a look at the leggy, buxom blonde, he was moved into action. The guitarist kneeled at the lip of the stage he grabbed Catherine's hair and he kissed her. Rather than slug the stranger, she let the lip lock continue. Jeff and Catherine, in the middle of a Slayer show, made out. How's that for a memorable show, Jeff? Once Hanneman broke up with his girlfriend, Jeff and Catherine would spend the rest of his life together. <laughs> And that, friends, is the show for the week. I didn't want to give you a boring week and just read chapter 6, so we went long. I hope you dug it. This now is what the show will be like every week. 
very short intro, then biggity, bam, into Slayer history. Update from the morass of technical bullshit that cannot stop us, but is definitely limiting our progress. IT people call it a pink bubble. I like to call it a black bubble. I am the one in a hundred thousand people that everything computer related will reliably glitch on every single fucking time, especially if I need it a lot. Apple Podcasts will still not let me complete my registration of the show. You can get this show on Apple by pasting in the RSS feed. That RSS feed is in the show notes. Patreon has also been offering up some impenetrable, unusual issues that customer service so far has not been able to resolve for me. So, for now, everybody gets all the shows. I guess I'm sort of doing this to maybe make some money, but primarily my top goal is to talk Slayer to you every week, and I'm doing that. I hope you dig it. More next week. Thank you for listening to Talkin' Slayer, a podcast and half-assed audio book by your pal Ferris. To support the show and learn more, visit patreon.com slash slayerbook. S-L-A-Y-E-R-B-O-O-K. Patreon.com slayerbook. No S on the end. Credits and crucial thanks. Podcast artwork is by Jason Shank of Midwest Authenticity Consultants. Unless otherwise noted, all the rad music is by Nige Savage, the aggressive perfecter, also of the awesome UK thrash band Chupacabra. Check them out. From the hit podcast Spanking It with Julio, the producer is Mitch Kramer, the spirit in black. The dog is Wolfie. Audio technical consultants are... Matt Wardlaw, The Tormentor, Forrest Gabbage of Southbound Tracks, codenamed Gemini, Jessica Baxter of the Paid in Puke podcast, and Stargate Pioneer and everyone at the Gunna Geek Network. Consultant for Audiovisual Affairs and Irish History is James Ferris of Massive Media. The beta test group is Vince Bloom, Craig Cohen, Steve O, your older brother Sam, Bruno McDonald, Jason Pettigrew, Outer Nowhere, Sue Madre, and Mike Olszewski. The Slatanic archivists are Jamie Walters, Tony Alberts, Spar Schmidt, Chris Bade, Paul from Dropgun, Paul from Slayerized, and Nicholas, the Slayer Collector. Ongoing thanks to metal mentors and radio dudes, including but not limited to Ed Rohr, Brian Biggs, Randy Fox, and Dean B. True. Additional Shingy, courtesy Captain Shum and the Concerned Party Lembe Squad. Expert consultation by Nate Runkle, the Catalyst, also of Yo, That's My John, good show. Howard H. Smith of Acid Rain and Talking Bullocks, a.k.a. the Captor of Sin. No Friender of the Thrash Metal Show and the When It Was Cool Podcast Network. And Ryan J. Downey, the Ghost of War, also of the Speak and Destroy Podcast. Thanks, I heartians, I heartians all, a lot. Partial list of people that I wish were still here. Sumner J. Ferris, Nora Ferris. 
Vera Lehane, Ron Forsythe, Lori Martin, Audrey Sapizi, Don Olszewski, and Tom Morrissey. Jeff Hanneman too, obviously, but I did not know him personally. If you have a different opinion, you are right and I am wrong. If you have questions or you want to rap, you can find me online. At Twitter, I am SlayerBook, no S. On Insta, I am SlayerBooks, with an S on the end. On Facebook, SlayerBook, no S. Buy the book and you can find an email address in it. The book, Slayer 66 and Two Thirds, a metal band biography, the 2023 postmortem update, is published by 6623 Press. It is a very reasonably priced paperback and a very cheap Kindle ebook. 6623 Press makes useful, reasonably priced, unconventional, creator-owned books about popular culture, success, and other cool stuff. This podcast is a production of 6623 Press and Mostly Things. The easiest place to find my books is Amazon, but select retailers have them too. If you're a retailer and you don't have them, but you want them, hit me up. Thank you for listening. More next time. Peace. Rest in peace to the Iron Sheik. Break his back. Make him humble. Hover off.